Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Tuesday, the 20th of October. Now, would you rather buy a house sooner or have more money in retirement? For many people, it is a real trade-off between having a deposit for a first home and having some super. Is the superannuation system working for you? That is our briefing topic in just a moment. First, Annika's here as we hit the big news of the day. Western Australia has delayed plans to remove all COVID restrictions after an outbreak on a ship docked at Fremantle. So far, 24 crew members on the bulk carrier have tested positive. Uh, Premier Mark McGowan says the state, which hasn't had any community spread for six months, is still at risk. We are surrounded by the threat of the virus. COVID-19 is circling the state and it's circling the nation. Right now, it's at phase four of a six-phase plan. That'll be tweaked slightly from Saturday. And while WA has the most freedoms in Australia, there's still that two square metre rule for venues with more than 500 people and a cap on the number of people still allowed to attend major events. Yeah, I did see over the weekend they hosted the Wine Machine Music Festival with thousands of people standing outside at a big concert, which was pretty amazing to see. But also interesting to hear there, Annika, that they are exercising some caution as those ships sort of show a degree of risk. The other interesting thing in the COVID space is the the ongoing fight between the feds and Dan Andrews with Josh Frydenberg coming out really strong, saying this cautious path for reopening is unforgivable, and then Dan Andrews saying this. It's all about the politics with this bloke, isn't it? That's all he does. He's not a leader, he's just a liberal. What do you make of this little spat? Politicians doing politics, that's what they all do, I thought. But look, it, I think it's a bit of a distraction for Dan Andrews. He is under a bit of pressure there is a push to reopen. You can imagine why Josh Frydenberg's keen. He's the treasurer. He gets money when people go back to work and the federal coffers are pretty empty at the moment. So they both have conflicting, I guess, um, things they want to achieve at the end of this. Dan Andrews needs to be really safe and return people so this doesn't happen again. But Josh Frydenberg really wants to start making money again for Australia. Yeah, and staying in Victoria, today we might finally find out who approved security guards for hotel quarantine. The probe had wrapped up, but last week, Inquiry Chair Jennifer Cote announced it would re-examine senior health officials after emails emerged which had not been disclosed to the Inquiry the first time round. Yeah, this is a really interesting development to see this Inquiry reopen. Um, media reports revealed Chief Health Officer Brett Sutton was involved in an email trail which discussed the private security, and that was months before he told the inquiry that he actually first became aware guards were being used. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how he goes today. Look, Brett Sutton maintains he did tell the truth and that if emails weren't handed over, it wasn't his call. My role is not to determine what emails go or don't go. All of my emails have been made uh, available for the team to uh, look through and provide uh, according to the request. Yeah, but the big question is, did he tell the truth about when he knew uh, private security was being used? And it's a, an interesting story because he became quite popular from his daily press briefings, Annika. Yeah, he had a bit of a cult following down in Victoria. Who knows whether this will tarnish it? I think people have picked teams in Victoria. It seems to be quite tribal down there. Uh, so I'm not too sure how we'll go today. But it, there was talk that some of those stories suggested that it wasn't him that actually stopped the email there were people in his department that said we don't want to hand these over. So it'll be mm. interesting to see if we get to the bottom of that. And it's been a weird week for footy awards. The NRL's Dahlia medal ceremony has been overshadowed by an embarrassing leak from the Daily Telegraph who published the shock winner before the ceremony had even started. Yeah, it revealed that Raider Jack Whiten had pipped favourite Nathan Cleary 
even publishing the vote tally. Now, Whiten told Nine he didn't find out early, even if everyone else did. Halfway through, they took all their phones and we didn't know what was going on, so uh, we had no insight of that at all. Do you reckon he really didn't know? I think he might have known. <laughs> <laughs> He's playing along anyway. Um, not surprisingly, um, Rugby League's furious. The ARL chairman, Peter Volandis, has announced an investigation into how it happened. But, Annika, you worked at the telly for years. Um, how does this stuff happen? Look, there's been a number of these. I know the Oz uh, did this with the Logies a few years ago and so did the Herald Sun. Often it's because the story's rewritten and this happens when they give out embargoed information. They say, don't put this is the winner. Don't put this online until a certain time. The story's all ready to go. And then, of course, it goes up a little bit early. So usually it is a mistake. The only way around this, though, is to not give the information embargoed. But that sets up another problem when often you write two stories. You write, what if this winner wins and what if this winner wins? You see this with, say, presidential runs. And then if that goes up, that's even wrong information going up. So I really just don't know how to get around it. Yeah, well, I guess of those two worst case scenarios, you'd rather be early and right than on time and wrong. <laughs> that has happened <laughs> before. <laughs> the UK has accused the Russian government of planning a cyber attack on the Tokyo Olympics. Yeah, the UK's National Cyber Security Centre says Russia's military cyber unit was planning to target organisers, logistics services and even sponsors before the event was postponed. It's also, quote, 95% sure the country is behind the attack of the 2018 Games in South Korea that crashed the website and the stadium's Wi-Fi. Yeah, news on this front from America too. Overnight, it's charged six Russian government hackers for allegedly hacking other governments' infrastructure and elections, doing a billion dollars worth of damage. Now, Annika, I'm watching House of Cards at the moment, and when a US journalist dies, they're like, we're going to blame this one on the Russians, and they do a deal with the Russian president. <laughs> You're going to take the blame for this death. And um, I just can't get that out of my mind when I hear this story. All right, in just a moment, the juicy topic of super. Hey, Annika, are you a good saver? Uh, not really, but not by choice. I think being a journo, I've never had the luxury of earning the sort of wage I'd get should have I gone into commerce or something else. So the little bit of money I have had, I've usually spent. Yeah, How about right. you? Yeah, I'm a filthy little saver, always have <laughs> been. Even when I was earning $4.50 an hour at KFC in the 90s, I was still shoveling it away into savings. It's interesting. Unlike a lot of other Western countries, Australia actually has a, a forced saving system. It's called superannuation. When that system was introduced... In 1992, 3% of your income went to super, which you can only access at the age of 66. At the moment, we now put in 9.5% to our super, and there are plans to increase it. By 2025, it should go up to 12%. Yeah, so the question for today's briefing topic is, is that the right thing to do? Should more of our money be put into super, up to 12%, or should we be able to have it now so potentially you could buy a house earlier or piss it up the wall? Look, opponents argue that it'll be a huge strain on businesses that are already doing it really tough in this recession. They also argue that it could come at the expense of a pay rise. Yeah, but then on the flip side, boosting the amount of super people have when they retire will ease the pressure on the age pension system, saving us all money. So we're going to bring you both sides of the argument. Andrew Bragg is a Liberal senator and he's only 36 years old. Andrew, thanks for joining us on the briefing. Why are you against the increase to 12%? The idea of putting more money into a system which costs 
work is so much money and doesn't work particularly well isn't such a good one. And so I think we need to think very carefully about how we can make super work harder for workers rather than just ploughing more and more cash into a scheme that doesn't work. Senator, at the moment, we're, of course, in a recession and businesses are doing it pretty tough. Do you think maybe the increase should just be put on hold until we get through this time and then it could go up later? Well, I think we need to have more flexibility in the super scheme. So for some people, it's going to make more sense for them to have uh, money for a home deposit, which is harder than it was to pull together than 30 years ago when super started. And for other people, it might make sense for them to have more super so they can become more self-independent uh, in, re- in retirement. But of course, the, the trouble with, with super is it's not money that falls out of the sky. It is real money. Uh, and so super is actually a cost of employment. It's part of your wages. So this would be, of course, the worst time to increase super. So your argument is we should keep this extra 3% either in our pockets or you know some of it might go to the, those businesses. You know, For people who, who are on top of their savings, they can put that into a house deposit earlier. So I, I think a lot of people would resonate with that. But what about the people who aren't really good at saving, who really need that kind of to, to be forced to save that bit of extra money so that they, they don't end up putting more burden on the pension system when they're older? Historically, Australians have been good at saving and we have been good at home ownership. Home ownership now for younger Australians is falling off a cliff. And part of the reason that it's falling off a cliff is because of super. Because for, for many people, it is a real trade-off between having a deposit for a first home and having some super. So I want Australia to be a nation of homeowners. I want my generation and generations that follow mine to be able to access a a home. So I think we should create some legislative changes or change the law so that um, people can actually permanently access their super for a first home. Because the best way to avoid poverty in retirement is actually to have have a house. If you are a renter in retirement and you're on the pension, you're not going to have a very good time. And so you're much better off having a house. And the reality is that super and the super increase could actually cost people the ability to access a a house, which, as I say, is the best way to avoid poverty in retirement. So I, I think we should take a holistic view of people's lives, not just try and count their super balances. And look, if we could could get the fees down, then I'd be much more open-minded about having more super going in. But don't forget that we spend more money on super fees than we do on power bills in this country. And the super funds kind of get away with it because it's all too hard. No one understands it. It it is very confusing. That was Liberal Senator Andrew Bragg. Some compelling arguments there. I think a lot of people would love to access their forced super savings uh, to get into the housing market earlier. Yeah, but now we're going to hear the argument for increasing super contributions from 9.5% to 12%. Emma Dawson's the Executive Director of the independent progressive think tank per capita. Emma, thanks for joining us. Why should super contributions go up to 12%? 
Um, well, because in short, if we don't get an increase to 12% in super, there's going to be very little um, wage share uh, going to workers anyway. Um, so as we saw last time, the super increase was frozen um, back in 2014. Uh, the claim back then was that the money would be in workers' pockets, and it hasn't been. Uh, there have been no real wage rises in the intervening years. In fact, real wages have gone backwards and people have lost uh, super at the same time. So some research we did earlier this year at per capita showed that in the intervening years, uh, last six years or so, uh, the average workers lost around four to five thousand dollars in super, and their real wages have gone backwards by about a thousand dollars a year at the same time. So at a time when profits are doing pretty well, and certainly were um, going into this recession, um, and none of that is going to wage share, then a guaranteed rise in the super rate is a way of ensuring that workers get some share of that productivity growth. So if the extra two and a half percent isn't going to workers, you're saying um, it's going to businesses. But now that we are in the coronavirus recession, does that change the situation? Because a lot of businesses are doing it really tough. Um, you know, tens of thousands are potentially going to go bankrupt in the next few months. Well, you can't have it both ways, Tom. So you can't have the argument that it comes out of workers' pockets and then also at the same time say business can't afford it. It's one or the other. Um, and the fact is that before this recession, um, in the last eight years or so, profits have gone up by about 10% and none of that has gone to workers. Now, uh, yes, businesses will be doing it tough, but the rate, the rate rise is pretty gradual. It's half a percent a year um, over the next, you know, five years. You know, for the average worker, that's about the price of a cup of coffee every week. But in retirement, that can make a significant difference to people's ability to, to live a dignified life. Um, there's always an argument against putting up super. You know, there's there's the same people have found an argument against putting up super in good times and in bad times. Uh, and the fact is that uh, we know that cur on current projections, people aren't going to have enough superannuation to retire co comfortably on, particularly women. Um, and women have been particularly hard hit in this recession as well. And we don't want to see yet another generation of women uh, where a third of them, if they're single and don't own a home, are retiring into poverty. But on home ownership, you talk about, you know, younger people not having the same rates of home ownership as, as previous generations. Do you think this is, uh, I guess, if that was to be reversed and if they were able to take more money out of their super, have a more flexible system, not pay such, you know, big amounts into their super, that maybe they'd get more money in their pay and maybe they'd be able to buy a house and that that's actually an important thing for retirement too, to have your own house and have paid it off? It's very important. Our retirement income system is predicated on you owning your own home. So the rate of the age of pension is set assuming you own your own home. But again, this, there is a problem with housing affordability across our nation, but particularly in the capital cities, in the East Coast capital cities right now. The answer to that is not to rob super. The answer is to invest in more social housing, in more affordable uh, build-to-rent housing at the lower end of the market, and also to you know, support people's wage growth and um, ability to get a secure job, a full-time job, or a, a permanent part-time job with benefits that allows people to put money into super. It's it's really uh, galling for people in the government to say, well, on the one hand, we're going to um, not put up the rate of super because we want young people to save for a home, but at the other hand, put up the cost of their university degrees and saddle them with, you know, tens of thousands of dollars more in, in hex debts coming out of, of university. Um, so if your concern is really about young people buying a home, there are a number of much more directly 
um, um, effective things you can do in order to make that happen. You shouldn't be saying to people, well, you've got to rob your future now uh, in order to have some security now and risk your security in retirement. We also know that lots of young Aussies withdrew money from their super during the pandemic, which the government allowed. Is that an argument that we should actually boost it and that maybe 12% is not enough? How are people going to cover that shortfall when they get to retirement age? A lot of them aren't, Annika, and particularly um, women. The big concern I have is that um, a lot of women aged between 25 and 34 have wiped out their super entirely just at the time when they're going to take uh, time out of the workforce to have children and then go back to work part-time. They're never going to make up that shortfall unless there are measures put in place to support them to do so. And one of those measures is lifting the compulsory savings rate so that they do accumulate um, more quickly than they would have. Uh, that That scheme to sort of say, well, if you, you know, you're feeling a little bit financially insecure now, raid your own super. Uh, and over $33 billion has come out of the super balances, mainly of low and middle income workers, a lot of them under the age of 35. Um, when actually there's trillion, there's a trillion dollars worth of debt here, uh, there were other ways of supporting those people without asking them to sacrifice their retirement security. So I think it was a wrong-headed scheme. And it's going to mean, for example, um, the average super gap, the savings gap between men and women at retirement age today is about 47%. Women retire with about 47% less super than men. In that age group between 25 and 34, the gap was only around 20% going into this um, plan. But following that withdrawal scheme, the gap's gone up to about the, an average of 45%. So those women in their 20s and 30s now are on a trajectory to be not just as badly off as their mothers were, but as badly off as their grandmothers were in retirement. That was Emma Dawson from Per Capita. Um, Annika, where I land on a lot of these arguments is that on the debate about 9.5 versus 12%, I think the increase is only going to be phasing quite slowly. So I don't think the pandemic's a strong enough reason to, to change that course of action. And I, I do think there's some merit to the argument that wages haven't been going up. So this is a way of dealing with that. Um, But I also think Andrew Bragg's case for bringing down super fees is a very good one. Those super funds and the investment managers make so much money. And the idea of accessing your super to buy a house, I get Emma's argument that you need money in retirement separate to home ownership. So don't let people get all their super early to buy a house. But why not the flexibility to get some of it early and help you buy a house earlier. Yeah, I think it'd be better if it was a little bit more flexible. I got my super statement recently and it said that I was on track to have more money than I'd need. Now, that might change. As Emma said, I'm a woman, I could take time out. But surely if I'm going to have more money, maybe I could have the option to play with that a little bit, put it into real estate, put it into the stock market with what I want to do. So, look, I think there has to be something for low-income workers that really need some sort of protection. But... It'd be really nice if we could play with it a little bit. Play with it. Sounds dangerous. (laughs) Better than pissing it up against the wall, Tom. All right, that's it for today. Tomorrow, should smoking be banned unless you get a prescription and buy your ciggies from the chemist? A Podcast One production.